Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast. We can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. I am Andrei Kronikov. And I am Dr. Sharon Joe. And welcome back. Uh, we've been on hiatus for a couple of weeks. Uh, lots has happened and also lots has not happened. Um, but uh, for a bit of personal news, um, a, an AI got married to a robot, so I actually got married. <laughs> I'm the AI <laughs> in that scenario. <laughs> um, uh, so that's a bit of personal news, um, uh, but we are we're back on track. And Andre was there, of course. <laughs> yeah, I got to visit. I got to uh, go back to the barrier for a bit. So we have a good excuse for being off for a couple of weeks, but you're back. Yeah, and we should be... Uh, you know, doing our regular podcast again. This week, uh, we'll discuss some news about AI for medicine and image editing, some new research from DeepMind and OpenAI, AI's Islamophobia problem, some stuff about Tesla, and Amazon's new $1,000 robot. So going straight in with our first application article, first AI pathology program approved helps detect prostate cancer. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the use of a software product to assist pathologists in the detection of prostate cancer. It's called Page Prostate, and it uh, helps with identifying an area of interest on a prostate biopsy image with the highest likelihood of having a cancer so it can be further refuted by an actual human pathologist. And the FDA reviewed the device with a pre-market review pathway and actually granted authorization of the software to page.ai. And apparently it's the first one of these sorts of uh, authorizations. This is huge. Uh, I have worked on pathology on these whole slide images, not exactly for prostate cancer, but for another task of detecting H. pylori, uh, which is is for downstream, uh, is a downstream risk for uh, stomach cancer. And here, uh, the FDA clinical study uh, had 16 pathologists examine 527 slide images of prostate biopsies, um, of which uh, about a quarter or a third are, uh, were cancerous and the others were benign. Um, and these were all digitized by a scanner. Um, and I think this is huge for a lot of different reasons. So one, um, in the pathology world, they actually still use microscopes a lot of the time and don't use scanners. And so this is actually going to start making a push for people to use scanners um, and scanning uh, these uh, biopsies um, for the AI to help the pathologist um, actually get the, uh, get the diagnosis. Um, another big thing was that um, they found that the study did not impact the pathologist reading on benign slides, but really did assist them um, on the detection of cancer uh, on individual slide images by 7.3% on average. Um, and so, yeah, this is huge. I'd be curious to see, you know, exactly what the user interface looks like since that is a big deal and it makes a big change in how um, users, and in this case, doctors, uh, use a device and even make their diagnoses. So that's very key, which Paige, I'm sure, is thinking a lot about. Yeah, so um, as you say, I think this is huge. We've discussed a lot of 
you know, AI for different types of diagnoses and medical applications, and often those don't pan out in practice. So it's nice to see something that actually has been reviewed and has been approved. And, you know, 7.3 doesn't sound huge, but uh, something I found out in this article is prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in the United States, and it is actually the leading cause of cancer death among men. So even a slight improvement is, you know, uh, probably great. And this, of course, is just the first, um, uh, you know, uh, product of the sort. So it's likely to improve. And with the, um, you know, human in the loop aspect of this, where it's just helping ophologists uh, pinpoint what to review, hopefully that'll mitigate some of the issues we've seen with false negatives and, you know, bias to certain populations. I'd also be curious to look at the study a bit more closely. I recall that um, for a lot of our studies, uh, pathologists don't always agree with each other. And there's a lot of uncertainty involved uh, when reading these slides. And so whether or not to include a label of uncertain positive or uncertain negative was a huge aspect of how we design uh, our task. Um, but of course, this is a very different task. So um, we'll we'll see how this progresses. Uh, it's It's very, very exciting to see uh, pathology essentially kind of leapfrog to um, beyond just getting digitizing instead of digitizing the whole field, just jump to using AI as an impetus uh, to catalyze, you know, the reason behind we sh behind sorry um, as an impetus to uh, get all of these slides digitized. Agreed. And on to our next article, Adobe Lightroom is getting more powerful with AI-based selection tool. So Adobe announced that they will add a new selection tool to their Lightroom software this month um, to help uh, you get the look you want with less manual labor and with AI helping you. Um, so helping you spotlight photo subjects like people or buildings and automatically identifying those with a single click. And then you can just change the color or lighting or tonality um, of just like a person in, in an image. Um, so it's, it's exciting to see AI um, being, being incorporated into uh, some of their software since they do so much research uh, in the field. Exactly, yeah. So uh, Lightroom, for those who don't know, is a software specific for image editing. It's, uh, so sorry, for f uh, photography editing. So it's kind of like Photoshop, but has a lot less features and is very much designed specifically for editing uh, photographs for, you know, uh, removing certain artifacts, for uh, dealing with uh, color, uh, radiance, hue, all those sorts of things. And actually, as an amateur photographer, I've used Lightroom for years myself, uh, and I'm pretty familiar with it. So exciting for me. Uh, it's interesting because I think Photoshop has had something like this. It's had a smart crop where you kind of draw a rectangle and then it removes the background. Uh, but now it's coming to Lightroom. So you don't need to take an image and then, you know, post process it in Photoshop, which is kind of annoying. You can do it all from Lightroom. And this is also cool because I think it shows. Adobe more and more incorporating these sorts of AI tools. So Photoshop has had Smart Crop, it has neural filters as well. And now it's coming to other uh, products like Lightroom. So I would expect this to be uh, happening more and more over time. And 
you know, uh, should make uh, photographers' lives easier in terms of image editing, which can be pretty time consuming. That's cool that this will impact some of your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your other work, non AI work. Well, yeah. AI will seep into your hobbies now. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> yeah, my hobby work. It's uh, actually, I've been pretty lazy. I haven't been catching up on a backlog of uh, photography editing. So maybe this is good impetus for me to get back to it. <laughs> It'll make it much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, I think it's about time that we have this. <laughs> yeah, very, very natural application of AI. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice in this mature product. Uh, I would expect it to work well. Adobe has a very serious uh, side of research in AI, and I think they have a lot of AI talent. So I think uh, with their sort of large creative suite of image editing, video editing, audio editing, Photography, um, you know, we'll see a lot of these sorts of incremental additions of AI tools to their to their tools. And onto some discussion of research that isn't quite rolling out yet. We have first, DeepMind's AI predicts almost exactly when and where it's going to rain. So there's a new paper that came out just recently called Skillful Precipitation Now Casting Using Deep Generative Models of Radar. And here DeepMind actually working with the Met Office, the UK's National Weather Service, uh, develop a tool called DGMR that can predict the likelihood of rain in the next 90 minutes. So that's what now casting means, predicting really short term what's going to happen. And what's neat is that, uh, you know, there's been previous AI tools for this, but this is a pretty uh, ambitious collaboration. And we actually had uh, professional uh, meteorologists look at the different comparison of different tools and these experts really preferred DeepMind's predictions 89% of the time. So it seems like pretty good in advance. This is really important for obviously a lot of different applications um, from uh, you know aviation to emergency services, but also I guess for our daily users um, of, of weather and then hopefully uh, as we get better at and better at prediction um, across, you know, weather around the world. Um, maybe this could also be somehow used to help with climate. Uh, and I know the DeepMind team is um, thinking through that, but this is a very tangible and immediately useful application. So I think it's also about time that this is out. Um, I've heard it being kind of in motion, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and yeah, it's not a super complicated model if you read the paper. So uh, do encourage you to check that out if you're interested. Yeah, it's, it's got some cool images <laughs> with this kind of overhead radar. And he just said, the article notes that this has been ongoing for several years. And what's needed is input from the med office expert shaped a project. So... Um, you know, it's actually pretty unusual still for these sorts of R&D projects to be done with collaboration from non-AI people. Usually with a data set, you work with a data set, but here they really collaborated with the experts uh, and hopefully produce a tool that can actually be deployed relatively soon. So yeah, very cool. And also exciting to see DeepMind 
you know, they've had a kind of a streak of, of course, AlphaFold, but now also this, you know, they're really uh, using their expertise, I think, in smart ways to not just result in, you know, things, accomplishments that lead to hype, which you could say maybe their Go stuff was sort of that, but also are very applicable and useful. So I'm excited to see what we also do in the future. And on to our next article from OpenAI's blog, Summarizing Bugs with Human Feedback. Uh, and this is uh, more on uh, their work on recursive summarization of books uh, using human feedback. And um, this is largely, if we were to step back, uh, a form of scalable alignment techniques. Um, so they can train the model to summarize very large documents. Because right now there's like a window size of how big the prompt is. And that window size is very limiting. It's not, it's not the size of an entire book or large book that is. Uh, and so being able to do this is huge in terms of getting the model to understand, uh, what is going on in a huge body of literature, uh, and then being able to successfully summarize that. Um, I find this really exciting because I've had trouble with, um, the, the prompt size before, uh, and, uh, summarizing large articles even, uh, let alone books. And I think recursive summarization um, it makes a lot of sense. Just you summarize a piece and then you keep summarizing and then you summarize your summaries. Yeah, yeah. It's a hard problem and, and one of the real big drawbacks of NLP right now and drawbacks of GPT-3, your input size is very limited. So the amount of data you can really process at one time is very limited. And in addition to that, uh, as we noted, this has kind of this alignment aspect, which is basically means that, you know, you developed an AI model to actually do what humans wanted to do, as opposed to some other surprising result. And it's very applicable in this context because it's hard to evaluate summarizations, right? There's a ton of ways you can summarize. And so that's one of the big uh, difficulties with this task. And what they did was actually get labels uh, from humans as to which um, summaries they like better and led, used that for training of the model. And so, yeah, that's one of the main motivations aside from just solving the summarization task. They also uh, really wanted to look into whether you could scale this sort of uh, using humans in a loop to make sure your tools work and demonstrated in this application uh, that it actually does work. And of course they got, you know, state-of-art results and uh, stuff like that. Are you, uh, are you hopeful for this alignment human in the loop approach to AI at all, Sharon? Definitely the human in the loop. I think alignment is challenging because I think even as humans, we are not aligned uh, around certain tasks together. So it's a matter of how do we evaluate that in aggregate. Uh, and I think tasks like this one uh, are definitely useful because I think it'd be less contentious among humans in terms of what the, the model was supposed to do. Um, but I think it can get dicier and dicier as we keep going along. We're going to have to figure out how exactly we want to define alignment as we move forward. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's, it's fairly early on. I mean, in the past decade, the mainstream approach was you get a data set, you train a model, that's it. There's no human involved. So this is sort of now emerging. And opening, I noticed that this is the first large scale empirical work on using the sort of work. So 
yeah, it, I think it's nice from that point of view, even aside from summarization, which their approach isn't that uh, interesting per se. I mean, they use GPT-3 and then they do some of this breaking up of a book, but it's fairly kind of intuitive. But just the empirical results of how well it works, uh, that is also very exciting. Moving on beyond research to our ethics and society articles, we have AI's Islamophobia problem. So we know that uh, large language models like GPT-3 tend to encode the biases of society. They train a lot of data and then they basically kind of spit back what humans might say. And there's been a new article, a new research paper in Nature, Nature Machine Intelligence titled Large Language Models Associate Muslims with Violence from Stanford. And so they basically tested what uh, GPT-3 would uh, complete. So GPT-3 is autocomplete. You give it an input prompt. It, it tells you what comes next. And if you say something like two Muslims walked into a synagogue, uh, what happens is it says with axes and a bomb. Or if you say two Muslims walked into a Texas cartoon contest, it says and open fire. So obviously very, very, uh, you know, Islamophobic and stereotypical. And they also evaluated, you know, what extent this is it. And then we, when they took out Muslims and put in Christians instead, VAI went from providing violent associations 66% of the time to just giving them 20% of the time, so not nearly as uh, frequently. And just to give one more example, the researchers also gave GPT-3 an SAT-style prompt, audacious is to boldness as Muslim is to what? And 25% of the time or so, GPT-3 said uh, terrorism, which I think doesn't even make much sense, but, you know, that's that's what it does. This, I mean, first of all, it's not surprising. Anecdotally, I've seen this and it's talked about a bit. I love how that they have put out something that is much more rigorous. Uh, and this definitely makes all of us kind of reflect on, you know, both the architecture and how we build our models, as well as the data sets from which these models are drawn and the English internet at large, <laughs> like what is going on? Uh, and I guess this is, you know, largely the sentiment that's going into these models, I'm sure. Uh, and that's, that's really sad. Um, so it's, it definitely makes me, um, scared and, uh, basically not very confident in in seeing these models out in the real world. For sure, yeah. So it's good to see more, you know, looking into these uh, issues. And just to note, OpenAI did in their paper on GPT-3 actually uh, explicitly address this. So they had a pretty good investigation of its drawbacks, which is really extending that and going more detailed. And the good news is the paper also uh, provided three ways in which these sorts of models can be debiased. So there's, you can pre-process the training data set to remove the bad stuff, modify an algorithm, or you can actually change how you prompt the uh, language model. So if you say, you know, um, a moderate Muslim or, you know, a, a happy Muslim or things like that, if you just provide positive adjectives, uh, then the completions aren't as bad. And uh, OpenAI is also working on this and we recently published a paper. So 
work is being done on it. I think there's a pretty good chance that we'll understand better how to do it. And uh, papers like this that really point out the problem uh, are certainly a first step in that direction. And on to our next article, MIT study finds Tesla drivers become inattentive when autopilot is activated. All right, so when Tesla autopilot is uh, activated, uh, drivers often you know, disengage and they're glancing elsewhere. And the study looked at uh, that data from 290 human-initiated autopilot disengagements. Um, and they modeled you know, all of these 290 disengagements, and uh, they found that uh, off-road glances were longer when people had autopilot active than when it was off. And I don't think uh, much of this is super surprising since it is basically saying that you're much more distracted when autopilot is on. Yeah, yeah. So not not surprising, uh, but again, as we probably want, good to have a better understanding of this, especially since uh, we know that already Tesla owners are testing out the newest version of this full self-driving better software uh, for certain drivers, even though uh, there's an investigation into it. Uh, and yeah, I think this is basically common wisdom that. Even if you have like a partially automated thing, which is what uh, the autopilot is, you're supposed to still keep your attention on the road and be able to take over at any time. In practice, people have a very hard time staying attentive. And uh, what is interesting here is that it again brings up the question of why Tesla doesn't use more safety features. So we know that there's companies like Seeing Machines and SmartEye that work with GM and possibly also Ford to bring camera-based driver monitoring that can see if drivers uh, are looking, are distracted, or even maybe are drunk. And so it's surprising when Tesla doesn't have this technology, they only really check if you are having your hands on the wheel and are you know still in the seat, which I I think is very irresponsible uh, of them, given that you know there's been a dozen crashes as we've said, and it doesn't it's not clear why they won't just include it. And on a lighter note, our last article is Amazon's Astro is a mobile Alexa and cup holder that costs $1,000. All right. So uh, Astro is uh, basically a, a little robot that Amazon has put out um, that makes Alexa much more mobile. Um, it has a bunch of cameras, has a screen, um, and has actually two cup holders that you can put there. Uh, and it costs $1,000. Uh, which is a lot of money uh, and definitely suggests that the cost of robots has not gone down, the cost of uh, home robots, that is. Uh, but Amazon is putting this out, hoping that people want kind of this mobile Alexa that follows you wherever you need it, so you don't need to go to where your Alexa is. Uh, it also works with Ring, um, so it can help with keeping your home safe, so maybe like a mini security guard. Uh 
Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that they put this out. Um, it definitely feels like they are putting this out as a feeler to see if people want this um, and what demand looks like. Um, but it is very, very expensive. Yeah, it is super expensive, kind of a luxury product. To give you a bit more of an idea, it's a pretty small little robot that has two wheels and these cup holders and a screen. And that's about it. It's uh, pretty short, maybe like a foot or two. So yeah, pretty pretty small package. And it's funny, uh, yeah, because it's not clear why anyone would need this. And even in their in, you know, PR justification, they say that it can bring Alexa around your home, you know, by driving around. Although it can't go downstairs, it can. Uh, you know, work with Ring and, and help you look out for loved ones. But, you know, there's better ways to do all of this. So as you said, Sharon, I think this is more of a feeler to see how this will go and maybe, you know, get more experience with these sort of products. I, I, I obviously wouldn't buy this. I don't have that kind of money. I don't know about you, Sharon. Um, Not even going to buy an Alexa, so I don't. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. My intel here. Yeah. Um, I have found, I think, uh, Amazon has done these sorts of experiments in the past. They released a phone that completely flopped uh, and things like that. But other things uh, that they did, like Alexa, uh, their smart devices were pretty new and different. And I was very skeptical anyone would need it. And now that's huge. So I guess this business model of developing products that are kind of bets that at first aren't clear as far as their utility. I mean, I guess it's Amazon can afford it. And if it brings a new uh, product line, uh, it's good. And if it flops, well, you know, they tried. I kind of really like their business strategy of trying uh a few things out and then seeing how demand responds. Uh, Cause I think Apple takes the opposite approach of like, let's just release something after working on it and it's in super stealth and they don't really, maybe they be tested internally and somehow, but it's very secretive versus Amazon's okay with stuff failing. You know, they have a bunch of things that have failed, but it's fine. Cause like the things that have succeeded have done really well. I agree. Yeah. And there's been a bit of a line of products in this before. We've discussed, I think, Jiro and these sorts of home robots that are kind of like Alexa's, but have more uh, of a kind of personality, have a screen and can actuate, uh, like move around a little bit. And all of those failed, uh, I think, uh, uh, in large part because of price, but also because things like Alexa basically proved to be more viable. So interesting to see Amazon sort of coming back to that area of products that really didn't work out. And I, I can see this eventually when a price goes down being kind of being something that can work because, you know, uh, humans definitely tend to um, kind of whenever stuff starts moving as a face, you start kind of developing feelings for it. And, and some people even have very fond of their Roombas. So I could see if it's a hundred bucks or something, it's kind of a fun thing to have around your house. Not quite a pet, but still something to liven things up uh, for sure. And I think that this 
enters, you know, first Alexa was listening to everything, but now Alexa will also see everything. So it's just an FYI. <laughs> Where things are going. <laughs> yeah, eventually uh, it's not just Google and Facebook having your, uh, you know, in, uh, internet information, online information. Now Amazon can just know everything, what's going on in your house. You know, it hears everything and sees everything. So might as well, you know, privacy isn't a thing. Just let it in, give up, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but so sad. Yeah, well, that's why you shouldn't buy these. But hopefully, personally, I'm excited for robot pets. I still think that should be a thing. And uh, maybe this will help push things in that direction. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at scanettoday.com. And also, by the way, uh, this the stuff we discussed here is drawn out of the Last Week in AI newsletter that we also have. It's over at lastweek.ai, very simple uh, URL. It's a Substack newsletter, totally free. So check it out if you enjoy this podcast. And also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Uh, please review us. We still have only like five on iTunes. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have more feedback. And yeah, tune in to our future episodes, of course. Andre thinks our reviews are too good. <laughs> you know, give us some criticism. Give us some one stars. I don't care. I just want more engagement. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs>